This is a Triple J podcast. Hello, it's Dee here. And if you've been feeling like after COVID, your love life has just turned to absolute shit. I don't know, maybe you've realized that your old habits and patterns in love and dating just ain't working anymore. Also, I feel like after times of hardship and uncertainty, I don't know about you, but for me, it can be like a really beautiful time to just reset and rethink how you want to change the way you live your life. And someone who's been helping people do that is psychologist Chris Cheers. He absolutely blew up over lockdown for his great advice on Instagram. You might have actually seen one of his posts in your feed or maybe a friend shared it to you, but now he's just released a new book. It's called The New Rulebook, and it focuses on five key areas, love, emotions, self-care, body, and work. Each chapter, he talks about an old rule and then he gives us a new rule. And with each new rule, he has some really great practical advice on rethinking the way that we do things. And I got Chris, I got the chance to catch up with him and I pretty much got him to do that just for you to go through each chapter, go through each new rule. It's a really super helpful chat and yeah, I really hope you enjoy it and I think you'll hopefully learn a lot from it. There's five specific rules that you go through in the book. Uh, I want to touch on a few that I think are really relevant to people who listen to The Hookup. And the first one being love. You have a whole chapter on love. And the rule that you have is old rule, love is about finding the one. New rule, love is the actions of connection, belonging and safety. Let's start off by talking about what is wrong with this idea of the quote-unquote the one, something that you spend a lot of time on talking about in your book. I think we could all relate to growing up surrounded by movies and TVs and a culture that just kind of tells us that the way to like the kind of social connection that will mean we'll never be alone and we'll just be with this person forever and live happily ever after. We kind of sold this idea that the way to social connection, which we all need, like our bodies need to be with other people, but we're sold that the way to get that is to find the one, the one person. And I think the problem with that is it creates this idea that love is sort of this thing that you should like search for. And then one day, You'll find it and you'll fall deeply in love. And I think the problem with that is that that creates this idea that love is something we can find rather than focusing on the idea that love is something we can do. Love is an action. This is something that Bell Hooks has written a lot about and, and I try to write about in this, in my book as well, this idea that we shouldn't just be focusing on finding love with this one person. We should be thinking about all the important relationships in our life, not just our romantic relationships, but our friendships, our family relationships. How can we show up better in all those all those relationships? So to put that another way, how can we love better? And me trying to define that in the book, I had to, you know, it was a really difficult moment when I realized I was going to have to try and define love. And what is love? And I think for me, love became the actions of connection of belonging and safety. And that's really what I've tried to talk into the book about how to do that and how to do that better. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about the importance of each individually, Um, the, the importance of connection, the importance of belonging and the importance of safety. And what can that look like for someone? Well, first off, that idea of belonging. You know, we talk a lot about sometimes wanting to feel like we belong to a group or like belong to to a community. But it's interesting, we don't often talk about 
belonging to our relationship. Like we don't say we feel like we belong, but that is the feeling you kind of want in a relationship. You want to feel like that you belong in that, that, that this person is sort of someone that, that you feel a real closeness to where you can be whoever you want to be. And this is what, you know, belongingness is about. It's actually about the ability to be authentic and to be honest and to be fully yourself with someone. And in relationships, that's what I think the actions of belonging are. It's actually really difficult because belonging, the first step is actually you have to learn who you are and then be that, be that authentic self. And then when that is accepted and validated by someone else, that's what belongingness is and that's what the actions of belonging are in a relationship. And this is closely related then to the actions of connection. But the actions of connection are basically good communication. I think we always talk about in anything to do with relationships that the secret is good communication. But what I wanted to do in this book is actually go a step further and actually say, well, what is good communication? How do we actually define that? And for me, good communication is all about the ability to be attuned to your partner's emotions, to validate those emotions, and also express your own emotions and for them to be validated. Because when it comes to relationships, the enemy of relationships is not conflict, is not you know difference of opinion. I think the enemy of relationships is distance. And it's a great a kind of irony in relationships that we actually often avoid being vulnerable or avoid telling the truth because we fear that's going to break up a relationship. But I think it's totally the opposite. I think being vulnerable and honest is actually what brings us closer together, even though it's uncomfortable, even though it's difficult. That's what the actions of connection are all about. It's true. And something I think you even quote Brene Brown in the book, but it's something that she talks about a lot about the power of vulnerability and how important it is. Uh, what about safety, Chris? Because I think that even if we look at the way that we date now, we talk about it a lot on the hookup is people are very careful and scared and uh, you know hold people at a distance or are quick to judge and red flag and ick and that kind of thing. How can we... Well, I guess like how important is the action of safety and yeah, how can we get that? Safety is so vital for relationships because although it sounds maybe not quite, you know, straightforward to say that safety is the thing that leads to pleasure and play, it really is. Because when we think about the ability to have pleasure in relationships, the ability to play in relationships, the ability to have fun in relationships... All that requires a foundation of safety, a foundation that, that you feel safe with this person to be able to explore those things and do those things, whether they be like sexual pleasure or just having a fun holiday together. It, it requires that safety. But again, we can't just say, well, you need to be in relationships that feel safe. We actually need to think about how do we make those relationships safe? And the actions of safety are all about doing things that help that relationship feel predictable for somebody. So thinking about relationships that you have, what do you do to try and let this person know that you're going to be there when they need you? How, what do you do? You know, do you follow through with what you say? Do you, are you honest with this person? Are you, do you have sort of things that you regularly do together that create this sense of predictability and to create this sense that you're going to follow through and, you know, your actions are going to match your words? And how do you build trust? Trust is another one of those things that sometimes we like to think, you know, maybe I'm just a trustworthy person or I want to find someone I can trust. But again, trust is something that we build. Trust is something we build by, you know, 
going, you know, doing what we say we're going to do, but also showing our partners, you know, that that we're trustworthy actually requires not, you know, if we're going to gossip to our partner about someone else, or we're going to tell them stuff about someone else, that actually also shows that we're not really a trustworthy person. So trustworthiness is always, yeah, about following through with what you're going to say, but also, you know, keeping things confidential and, and showing someone that, that you are someone that they can trust through action. I love that so much. Um, you, at the end of each chapter with the new rule, you give ways that people can do that practically, which I think is so incredible and maybe prompts with questions and things for people to think about. Right now, for anyone listening, what is something that they can do practically to try and create that new rule that love is the actions of connection, belonging and safety? I think it's about sitting down and thinking about who are the important relationships in your life. So, we focus again too much on romantic relationships. I think we get this idea that we need that person to complete us. I think that then feeds into this yeah, romantic idea that maybe leads us to not consider the importance of all the relationships in our life. Because in the end, someone who is like, you know, we sometimes talk about people who are not in relationships as, as if they're less than or there's something wrong with them. I would say that the people who are at a deficit aren't people who are not in a romantic relationships. It's people who are not in relationships that have connection, belonging and safety. So think about your family relationships, your friendships, whoever is important to you. And just, you know, write them down on a page, write down those relationships. And then for you, think about what are the actions? What are the little things you can do? tomorrow that show up for those people in your life and beyond that then also think about what are the boundaries that you can have in that relationship which boundaries are you know something that we talk a lot about these days but again for me boundaries are that you know that the safest distance where you can you know love yourself and someone else and i think thinking about that for yourself like how can you communicate those boundaries because boundaries are useless unless they're communicated so how can you tell people in your life how they can love you because i think that's one of the most important things is not just expecting the people in your life to know how to love you but how can you actually communicate that because then they can show up for you then then they can do that but until you take that vulnerable step to actually tell them how they can show up for you how can they love you then we can't just expect it to happen totally i'm a big fan of just loki yelling at people together to do what i need <laughs> making it loud being and clear like, I need this now <laughs> um, no so okay the next chapter emotions that I want to chat about because I think this is you know personally something that I've always struggled with I think that most of society struggles with this um, this idea that you need to quickly move from hard difficult emotions in, in quotations so your old rule is emotions should be controlled the new rule is emotions should be understood with openness and curiosity what do you mean by that? Well, when you consider what are the rules about emotions that you've grown up with, and, you know, we, we are born crying. You know, we're born babies, we're crying, we express that emotion, and then people hear that emotion, and then they cater to our need. They, you know, they're there for us because we're screaming, we need food or whatever it is. We communicate our emotion and people then cater to that need. But then as we grow up, we start to be surrounded by a culture that says, you know, don't cry, don't get upset, don't get angry here. Now's not the time for it. You know, we, we're kind of told that there are good emotions and there's bad emotions. And if you're having the bad ones, you should do everything you can to kind of not communicate them or to keep them inside or to wait for the appropriate time. And what this does is it doesn't make our emotions go away. 
you know, and I've sat with many clients who basically come and see me as a psychologist because they want me to help them feel better. But unfortunately for a lot of people, feeling better or feeling happy means to not feel these bad emotions. But we can't ever do that because those emotions, sadness, anxiety, stress, they're all there for a reason. There is nothing I can say and there's nothing anyone should ever be able to do that gets rid of those emotions. So the alternative is if we can't get rid of them, we need to actually build a new relationship with them so that they are still part of our life, but they don't overwhelm our life. And that's what I mean about that idea of looking at our emotions with openness and curiosity, is being able to sit there and think, what am I feeling right now? What is it, why does it make sense that I feel like that? And also, what is that telling me that I need? Because when we consider you know, something like anxiety, anxiety might be telling us that there's something really important that we're doing right now that we need to be really conscious of and mindful of and think about what we're doing. You know, um, jealousy might be this emotion that actually tells us that there's something in our life that we want that we're not actually trying to get or taking action to try and receive. You know, anger is this emotion that tells us that there's someone in our life that's maybe disrespected us. Uh, emotions often lead us to taking action and really importantly, rather than viewing our emotions as an indicator that we're doing the wrong thing, often our uncomfortable emotions are an indicator that we're doing something meaningful, that we're actually doing something in our life. And I think we can also all relate to that idea of times in our life when we've felt unanxious or stressed or uncomfortable, but we can tell it's because we're doing something meaningful. And we follow through with that thing always because it's meaningful. And I think that's the, that's the, question in the end basically to have a meaningful life is what emotions am I willing to have in order to do this thing that's meaningful because I think that's that's the kind of relationship with even the most uncomfortable emotions that we need to have they're there for a reason they're not an indicator that we're doing the wrong thing yeah we'll chat about in just a sec the practical ways to maybe be more curious and open to those emotions and sit with that difficult quite unquote difficult emotion. But um, I'd love to uh, chat to you a little bit about what happens when you try and suppress or quickly avoid your emotions. You speak about this in the book because it's something that so many of us do with, uh, I guess, addictions, one thing, but, you know, just quickly going on our phones or trying to watch something on Netflix or whatever it is. We try to quickly avoid that difficult emotion. Um, yeah, what, what happens when you do that? Well, there's an idea we often say in psychology that what we resist persists, you know, that just because we've kind of controlled it in that moment. And I don't want to show a judgment on these things. Like if you are, you know, I use red wine, chocolate, you know, Netflix as much as the next person when I'm feeling low or when I'm feeling stressed. And in that moment, it's helpful. And that's why we don't want to show judgment on these things because they're there, we do them for a reason. You know, we, they're there for, you know, they, they help us cope in that moment. But the problem is in the long term, they're not actually maybe leading to life of meaning, you know, and, and what I mean, what I mean by that is that if we're just focusing all our actions on controlling our emotions, it can be pretty eye-opening to kind of sit there and think about what is in this week, what are all the things I've actually done that are about trying to cope with emotion rather than what are all the things that I've done that are about living a meaningful life? 
And what we can start to realize is we spend so much of our time and energy actually trying to control or distract or get rid of emotions rather than putting a lot of our time and energy into actions in our life that are aligning with what's meaningful to us. Like, you know, having that difficult conversation or making that big change to our life that we need to make. You know, all those things are going to require an ability to be accepting of our emotions because if we spend too much time just trying to control and avoid them you know i think it's susan david who wrote a book called emotional agility emotional agility says that discomfort is the price of admission for a meaningful life and i always reflect on that because i sit with a lot of clients who go the other way where you start avoiding your emotions or you start doing things to get rid of your emotions and then you start avoiding situations that are going to bring on those emotions and then you start avoiding relationships going to bring on those emotions and then you just keep avoiding 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 and if the aim of life was to not feel uncomfortable then you've got a successful life there but it's not that's not the aim of life the aim of life is not just to avoid uncomfortable emotions we need more we need a meaningful life and that's that's why we need to build this new relationship with our emotions because if All we do is avoid things that are going to bring uncomfortable emotions. We just end up avoiding life. And that is, you know, never what, you know, never where we want to end up. Totally. I mean, that's where feelings of like apathy come from and just not, it's like life in itself. If you allow yourself to feel the different emotions, it's like a roller coaster. It's up and down. It's all over the place. But yeah, you end up just kind of this linear safe place of emotions that you've only allowed yourself to feel. Um, Okay, what about some practical, like I said, at the end of every chapter, you go through some ways that people can do that. What are some practical ways that we can better approach our emotions? The first thing to do is remind ourselves that emotions are a process that we need to go through. So every time you're feeling an emotion, even an intense one, remind yourself that every emotion you've had before has passed. And this one will too. It's just that we need to go through the process. And sometimes that process might be helped by doing something physical. So if you're feeling really stressed or anxious, um, sometimes we think we need to like solve the cause of our stress or talk about the stress. Or But sometimes what we need to do is just do something with our body to process the stress. So that might be running or a breathing exercise or going for a walk or, you know, I, I sometimes like to like, you know, punch a pillow and scream to kind of process that stress. Sometimes we just need to do something with our body to process stress. Other times we may need to take an action in our life that's based on that emotion. So if someone's disrespected us and we're feeling angry, maybe we need to talk to someone or or to rise up against a system or to, to rise up against our boss or say something to our partner. Maybe that's what we need to do. So emotions need to either be processed through action of our body or through maybe taking some sort of action in our life. So the practical strategy there always is to ask yourself those three questions when you, whenever you're having an emotion. What am I feeling? Why does it make sense? And what do I need right now? And giving yourself that space to really listen to that, especially that, that first one, what am I feeling? Sometimes, like in the book, I've got these feeling wheels that can help you kind of name your emotion because, um, and Brene Brown writes a lot about this, that the the name we give to our emotions actually changes our experience of them. So things like, you know, sometimes on a Friday night, if I'm home alone, I'm a big FOMO kind of person. You know, if I can see people having a great time, I might start feeling lonely or, and I might call that feeling loneliness and that or sadness and I may end up there. But sometimes I can actually take a moment to go, hang on, maybe this isn't loneliness. Maybe if I call this solitude, 
I can actually change my experience of that night. Because now it's not about, you know, missing out or, or being lonely. It's actually thinking, okay, I have this like space of solitude. Maybe I can do something in that space. Maybe I can use that space. Um, and it, so it changes our experience of it when, when we actually name our emotions. So that, that's the three points. Naming your emotion or, or, or considering what you're feeling. Why does it make sense you're feeling like that? And then giving your space to actually think about what do I need right now and then taking that action. Another one I want to talk about uh, is self-care. That's a chapter and a rule. So the old rule is self-care means putting yourself first. New rule, us care, in quotation, means when we care for others, we care for ourselves. Before we we get into what that new rule means and looks like, uh, I'd love to chat to you a little bit about the impact of the wellness industry and self-care. This is something that I've fallen victim to uh, when it comes to self-care. And yeah, I guess I want to chat to you a little bit about like how that plays out and, and how it can be damaging. I think it's useful to consider the history of self-care when we talk about this because self-care as a concept started, you know, in sort of the black feminist queer movements of the 70s and 80s. And back then, self-care was the thing that the the black sort of feminists of, of that time did to care for themselves so they could rise up against systems and care for their community. So it's talked about, especially, you know, Audre Lorde referred to self-care as political warfare. That was, it was this thing that we did to care for ourselves so we could care for our community. But as I look through, you know, Instagram today and and the wellness industry, I think the ideas of self-care have really changed. And there's, it's become this thing that we can almost buy. You know, we can almost, these things that we can purchase for our self-care or this kind of, we share it on Instagram, this idea of kind of performing our self-care. So self-care has become this thing that's a lot less, I think, about doing things for ourselves so we can care for our community. And I think it's been sort of adopted in a very individualistic way. And, and what I mean by that is sort of, you know, whether you want to blame Western capitalism, whether you want to blame the internet, whether you want to blame social media, I, I think what's happened is self-care has become this thing that's so focused on self that it's something you can do for yourself that's for yourself, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. But the problem is, is I think self-care can't be the end of the story. You know, you can't just self-care your way out of everything. You know, this idea that if you are feeling anxious in your life, that, you know, you may have an anxiety disorder or the problem is in you and you need to do everything you can to make yourself better and you have to self-care your way out of whatever mental health difficulty you have. And the problem with that is it's missing out on this really important part, which is your mental health is actually dependent and impacted really heavily by all the external factors in your life. So the systems that surround you, what's happening in your relationships, what's happening in your work, what's happening in the world right now, climate change, global pandemics, all of this stuff is not your fault and all of that stuff impacts your mental health. So if we focus too much on this idea that it's your responsibility to self-care your way out of everything, it means that we're not actually giving ourselves that ability to be compassionate and say, you know what? Self-care is harder for me today than other days. Or because I'm part of this minority group or, or this group that's systemically sort of discriminated against, that self-care is harder for me. And that's a really important point to make because it means you can have compassion on those days where you're not able to, you know, do that action that, that you're meant to be doing to look after yourself. 
Yeah, and I guess like you were saying, I don't know, with the wellness industry, there's like a real capitalist agenda behind it. It's like making money and that never really has your best interest at heart, no matter how many face masks you put on. Because <laughs> um, self-care shouldn't be about, this is pampering. Pampering is yeah. lovely, you know, having a bath or buying a face mask, wonderful. But if you're doing yoga or buying face masks or buying candles to help you cope with a relationship that's not good for you or to help you stay in a job that is not meaningful to you, then that's not functional. That's not a good thing to be using self-care to, to keep yourself doing something that's not meaningful or not good for your mental health. And that's what I invite people to sort of question in this book is that self-care should never be this Band-Aid for, that maybe is distracting you from really big changes that you need to make in your life. So I talk about that idea, you know, we often talk about self-care as like filling up your cup, like that you should, every day you start, you know, with a cup and, you know, you're emptying it during the day, so you should do things to fill up your cup with self-care. But sometimes our cup has a leak in it, or sometimes we just need a totally new cup. It's not just about filling it up all the time. Sometimes we really need to consider, maybe we need to make big changes in our life that are difficult, that are uncomfortable, rather than just kind of using self-care to maybe distract from those big changes. Huge. It's huge to hear that. <laughs> uh, Chris, the new rule is us care means when we care for others, we care for ourselves. Tell us a little bit about that and some ways that we can do that in our own lives. Yeah, this is the idea of community care, which again is not a new idea. You know, I call it us care, but it's really good to recognize, you know, especially Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures or other, you know, First Nations cultures throughout the world. The idea of, you know, community care or thinking about your community is has been, you know, here for thousands, tens of thousands of years. But I think Western culture has kind of taken a sidestep from that and has become quite individualistic, has become quite focused on self. And what I want people to consider this in this book is that your life isn't divided up into doing things for self or doing things for, for others. There's an important other thing, which is you can do things that are for others that are also for yourself. Because when you do things for your community, that feels good. And the reason it feels good is because you're also doing something for yourself because you're also part of that community. So what I invite people to do is to think about who your us is. And for me, your us should be, you know, just writing down the people in your life that are important to you. You know, whether that's friends or family, maybe that's colleagues, maybe that's, you know, other people in your life, whoever your us is, imagine that they're all with you in a room right now. What are some things you could do for them? What are some actions that you could do for the people in your life? And just experiment with doing those things and just notice the impact that has on your mental health and well-being. Because not only will it feel good because you're doing things for other people, but also when you improve your community, you improve your sense of social connection. And one of the most important things we can do for our mental health and well-being is improve our social connections. And I think after the last few years and lockdowns and, and pandemic we're still currently going through, we're all very, it's very clear to us the impact of isolation and loneliness has on our mental health. But the way out of that is not, I think, just sort of self-care. The way out of that is actually improving the connections to the important people in our life. And that that's what I mean by us care, actually doing the things that are good for your community because they're also good for you. So the last one I want to talk to you about, Chris, is body, uh, a chapter on body. So the old rule is be body positive. The new rule is develop a relationship with body focused on function, pleasure, and rest. 
What are some of the messages that we've been told about our bodies from a young age? So when we consider when we're like little toddlers, right? When when you need to eat, you often go and get some food or you ask your parents food, you often get it. When you need to nap, you know, in the afternoon, you often have some nap time. You, you do what you need. But then you go to school and school is one of the first times in our life where suddenly when we can eat is dependent on when the bell rings. You know, when we can sleep is dependent on, you know, the end of the school day. When we have to wake up is dependent on getting to school on time. Suddenly, school is this first time where we start to divide our, our life into sort of work and play. And what's really important there is that's the moment, I think, that we start to learn to disconnect from our bodies and our needs. Because if we really, really need to sleep, but we have to go to school. We can't sleep. And the only way to get through that day in and day out over years is to just disconnect from that need to rest. Or if we're hungry, you know, maybe not only do we sort of disconnect from that need because we have to wait till the bell, but also then we start to learn within this sort of diet culture that surrounds us, we start to learn that there's certain foods that are kind of bad or morally wrong, or there's certain foods we shouldn't go near. So again, when we feel like those foods, we are told we're not allowed to have them or they're wrong. So we then have to disconnect from that need. We have to disconnect from that one. And especially if you are put in a place where you're sort of attempting some sort of diet, you really start to disconnect from your body's need for food or sugars or whatever it might be. So we have this culture that kind of teaches us to disconnect from our bodies. And beyond that, almost distrust our bodies and distrust what they're telling us that they need. Distrust the need for rest as if, Rest is not productive, so therefore we shouldn't do it. And when we just need to, you know, lie down, when we just need to chill out, that, that if we're meant to be doing work, we sort of distrust that that need for rest. And that's, I think, the, the problem, uh, you know, that we have in this culture. Not only are we disconnecting from our, from our needs, we're also seeing those needs as maybe wrong, even like sinful or even that, that these needs are, you know, something that, that we should ignore or distrust. So what I really invite people to do in the book is to try and connect to our body's needs again and really learn to trust our body again. Because, uh, you know, sometimes people would say that, oh, but if I just gave my body everything it needed, surely that's not good. I'll just, you know, I don't know eat junk food and, and drink all the time and have chocolate all the time. But you don't, your body will never lead you to do that because your body is going to lead you to health. It's just that we need to give it the time and space and really listen to it. Because I can promise you, if you do eat nothing but junk food and chocolate, your body will tell you that that's not good. It's just you need to give yourself space to really listen to your body. And I think that's some of the sort of culture that surrounds us. Speaking of culture, we've seen the past, I don't know, over maybe the decade that body positivity movement has been a huge thing. Something that you talk about and say you're not really a fan of. Why is that? What I'm not a fan of, I guess, is what we might call toxic body positivity, which is this idea that you should love your body no matter what, you know, all the time. Because the idea of loving your body and body positivity has helped you, then absolutely keep it up. Like if it's working for you, great. But what I do see is kind of, this other group of people who maybe the idea of body positivity is not giving them the space to actually talk about their normal frustrations with part of their body. Or maybe toxic body positivity is not giving them space to actually connect to their reality, which is that there's parts of their body that they don't like very much, which is a totally normal thing, especially in a culture that's telling us that our body needs to look in a particular way. When we're surrounded with that, it's going to be really normal to be critical of our body. It's going to be really normal to hate parts of it some days or to be frustrated by it some days. So I'm not saying that stuff is a 
good thing to be critical of our body, but I am saying that we need to talk about it. I am saying that people need to be given space to process that and to have conversations about that and to talk about that. And sometimes a body positivity movement may not allow that space. Someone might not feel able because they're just meant to love their body all the time. And you can't make yourself love your body. If you're not, we need to be able to talk about it and process it. And I think the other part of the body positivity movement is, again, it's sort of been adopted by a particular kind of body, often a, a white body or this space is often not created to love all bodies. It's almost like you should love your body, but that everyone telling you to love your body tends to look a particular way. And that, I think, becomes a problem too. And especially if the body positivity movement is not allowing you a space to accept your body, then then I think that's where it starts to become a problem. And that's that's what I invite people to consider in this book to what I call body neutrality or body acceptance, which is something, you know, a lot of a lot of people have written about. This idea that maybe that's sometimes where you need to start. Absolutely, hopefully we end up, you know, in you loving your body. But maybe the starting point is actually just noticing your body and accepting your body for what it is, being feeling neutral towards your body. Maybe that's the starting point for you to be able to actually start to change change your relationship with your body. It's also just never acknowledged that there's certain people who live in bodies that have to work that much harder to get to that place of body positivity because they're not seeing their body reflected (laughs) in popular culture and then what's considered, quote, unquote, the the beautiful type of body. So, yeah, it's like, well, why is this such a hard thing for me to get to when everyone around me seems to be loving their body so easily? I also write about the idea, you know, I work a lot with the trans and gender diverse community and I think any understanding of body needs to allow the space for someone to change their body if it does not align with their gender identity. And if you're surrounded by a body positivity culture that's just telling you to love your body no matter what, that might give not give the space for people whose gender identity does not match their gender assigned at birth to actually be okay and to know that it's okay if they want to change their body to align with their gender identity as well. So I think that's where we need to create more space within, you know, the body positive movement. Because if changing your body is something you need to do for your mental health and well-being, if you need to do for your gender identity, then that should be okay. Completely. Chris, so the new rule is um, develop a relationship with your body focused on function, pleasure and rest. How are ways that we can do that? Uh, We have to fight basically against the world that surrounds us that tells us we can't do it. You know, this was the hardest chapter. The body chapter was the hardest chapter to write because it is completely pointless for me to just tell people to rest more. To just tell people, sleep's really important, you should just sleep more. Rest is really important, you should rest more. Um, You know, nutrition is, is important, you should eat better. Exercise is important, you should exercise. You know, we all know this already. Our bodies tell us this. We've read about this. We, we know this. We know important how important this is for our mental health and well-being to, to eat well, to exercise, to, to rest. So what I've tried to do in this chapter is rather than just tell you to do it, <laughs> to, to do all these things you know you need to do, I think we need to come from a starting point to understand the systems that surround us or the expectations that surround us that are often not giving us the space to care for the body in the way we need. So to put another way, I don't need to tell you how to look after your body. You need to give yourself permission to do it. And that often requires rising up against the boss. When, when they say you need to do this job or you need to do this extra work or do this over time, it's in that the moment where you need to set up a boundary or you need to say no, or that's what looking after your body actually looks like. It's 
it's rising up against systems and communicating that this is what I need right now and creating the space to do it. And the same with rest, you know, you know, rest is resistance. You know, Trisha Hershey, that is this amazing new book that's out that's creating, you know, her movement is the nap ministry. This idea that, that we need to, you know, really remember and understand that rest is productive. You know, if we don't rest, we don't learn, we don't recuperate. So the more you can remind yourself why these things are important to you, but then also take the actions to rise up against the people or the expectations in your life that are telling you you can't do it and hopefully create communities of people around you that continue to do that. I think that's the place that we are in life right now. You know, this current kind of post-lockdown kind of place of uncertainty, we're all questioning how to live, how to love, how to care for our bodies, how to work. That's what I want this book to be. I want this book to be a place where you can start to know that your path through this uncertainty is not just to go back to doing what was or go back to those things that feel certain and safe. Unfortunately, and I say unfortunately because it's really uncomfortable to do this, the path out of this is actually going to be what do I need and how do I communicate that to the people around me, even though that's uncomfortable and difficult to do so. That's the really important thing. And that's what I think creating the space to look after your body looks like. And for most of the other chapters as well, I feel like that really resonates what you said there, Chris, I think just in general, just about using this time, this opportunity to come through so much hardship and the past three years uh, to reflect on so many of these things you cover and, and yeah, create a new meaningful life for yourself, which I think a lot of people are really craving uh, and feeling that real disconnect from themselves and society and love and connection and that kind of thing. So yeah, it's been such an absolute pleasure chatting to you about this this and um, yeah and and for you to be able to put it in ways that I think is really accessible for so many people because we hear these messages all the time but the way that you like are able to talk about it just seems to resonate a bit I don't know deeper I don't know you just come across so it's like I it makes sense when you say it <laughs> and that's what I want. you know this book is meant to be you know it's quite short it's meant to be accessible you know it's inclusive of all genders and sexualities but it's also accessible in the sense that it's easy to read it's also beautiful I was blessed with such mm. amazing designers it's full color so it kind of is meant to feel like almost like a coffee table book that's actually also really good for your mental health love that and and that's what i wanted to create so i really hope people are able to to pick it up and to feel like this is an accepting place this is an easy thing to read and to to and then maybe inspire them to take little achievable changes in their life to really start to make those big changes completely something that you can revisit if it is just sitting on the coffee table which it will definitely be in my house uh yeah thank you chris i really have loved this chat so i appreciate you coming on the hookup Thanks so much. Honestly, isn't he the best? Um, I hope that you learned just as much as I did from that chat with Chris. And also, remember, if you ever have anyone you'd be keen for us to chat to just like him, someone maybe you've come across on Instagram or socials and, yeah, you reckon that'd be awesome for um, our hookup fan to listen to, make sure you DM us at Triple J The Hookup. We'll catch you next time. Bye.